Fearless. 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 Fearless Presence. I'm here today with Acharya Shunya, and Shunya is a highly sought-after international speaker known for her rich insights in empowering personal health, elevating human consciousness. She is the first female lineage holder from an ancient line of Vedic spiritual teachers from northern India. She was groomed in the study of Vedic scriptures for 14 years by her grandfather and guru and chosen amongst multiple male candidates as the first female spiritual leader of this lineage at the age of 24. Audience describe her as a catalyst for awakening and a beacon of light that illuminates the path on the journey from powerlessness to powerful. She has transformed the lives of thousands through her extensive online teachings, digital programs, public talks, podcast, and written work. Her most recent book, Sovereign Self, was recently released, and I'm so excited to have Shunya here. I have uh, been just bathing in your book, and I feel like I've been waiting my whole life for you. (laughs) It's just been so incredibly, uh, as somebody who's very, I I think one of my greatest frustrations just in... um, getting into yoga just on a very basic level is that I'm, I I think I'm really sensitive to lineage. And that's been one of my, it's been an, at least a perceived obstacle to really getting deeply into yoga here where I live at the local level. And so I'm just so um, soaking up everything uh, from your book and your website because, uh, because I can really feel the, feel into your lineage and I value that so deeply thank you one of the it's a a joy to be with you thank you so much yeah there are so many gems and quotes from your book and one of my uh, favorite ones is that everything in the cosmos great and small lives in the self I really enjoyed that and I was uh, wondering if you could um, elaborate on that a little bit, like that expression from the Vedas. Mm. And the Vedas are um, our contemplations and um, insights, rarefied insights of amazing men and women, the seers known as Rishis and Rishikas who lived thousands of years ago. And these seers walked the path of enlightened wisdom before religion was born in India, they, they precede all religions, Hinduism, Buddhism. And they explain the self as Chitta Rupa, um, Akhanda Ananda, which means uh, it is uh, the self is in the form of uh, consciousness, awareness, um, Gagana Sadrisham, as expansive as the sky. And you can feel it right here when your heart is no longer constricted with the story, but it's expansive. Then it is in a state of pure being. And this self is, um, is ekaha, which means one. And you, Melanie, and I, and all beings, and the caterpillar, and the butterfly, and 
every sentient being, we all enjoy the luxury of a different mind and a different story and a different body. But when we are deep asleep, we return to the same self. It's a non-dual self. It's one self. And this whole universe, in fact, emerges in that self or because we are that pure consciousness, that living principle, that intelligence, then it's as if like the stars appear to us and they feel far away, but they are all in that field, which is our truth. So the whole, the whole Leela, the whole drama is that we think we are, uh, we, are, we are visiting something like a plane or a dimension, but that dimension is emerging in us and we are that. And so the Vedas didn't have a word for that. So they just called it that. You are that. Tattvamasi. You are that ultimate that you seek. The God and goddess that you have created is none but that. That came first. Everything emerged later. And that self is Atma or the boundless presence, which is you. And it inspired me. Oh, it's inspiring me just to hear you. Yes, (laughs) just to uh, hear you explain it. And, you know, in uh, I often say that the only rule we ever follow is as above, so below that we, you know, and, and the cosmos is within and all of our answers are within and we spend so much time chasing the things that we don't, you know, that are right with us. Very true. Sometimes I feel like we already know the answer and then we complicate our journey. (laughs) And instead of turning within and beyond an intellectual knowing, we go into an experiential being. We complicate our lives and we outsource our knowing and we run from the pastor to the priest, uh, from the church to the temple to purify ourselves when our true being is blemishless and amazing. Mm. Can you talk about how bondage and suffering have always been optional? It is because, you know, it's interesting that the living being in the Vedas has been given a Sanskrit term, which means jiva. And the literal meaning of the living being or jiva is not just biological mass of needs and desires, but the living being is the one who suffers And the one who seeks an answer to the suffering is the living being. How well it encompasses you, me, and all the people we know. We suffer and we seek an answer to suffering. And this is the living being on the theater of life. But um, we have, it seems, forgotten our true essence. So it's a cognitive error. It's not. um, So if you've forgotten something, like you think you have run out of food, and um, you don't have money to buy food, but you've forgotten that you have a basement in the house where you have all kinds of food waiting for you. In fact, there are doors that open to grasslands and farms and ponds where you can find fish and everything possible is right there. And in modern parlance, we can call it that the conscious mind doesn't know, but the subconscious has the potential waiting for you. But in the Vedas, it's even beyond the mind. The the, the drama is not happening in the mind. Subconscious or conscious mind, they are both limited in their leap. But when that mind turns inwards and connects with the true self, the bondages end, the bondages, the obligations, the attachments, the consciousness, the unconsciousness, the self-created drama 
and once uh, the light comes on and uh, one suffering ends it's as if like uh, if i may say so it's a it's a teach it's a vedic example that um, when you're trying to get gold you don't get gold right away you get a ore and it's a dirty looking piece and then you have to burn it like you have to heat it and then the smelting takes place in the same way we have to we have to smelt our our mind in knowledge traditions and in a path that helps us discard our ignorance our self ignorance and when self knowledge is obtained light light is known from within we remember we have we are self fulfilling people we are much more we have much more potential to be content and peaceful than we knew so from that perspective all suffering is optional you also talk about in the book about chasing shadows and i really enjoyed this because i have a jungian background to some extent and i've certainly done a lot of my own shadow work and recently i ran across a native american story about how uh then the story tells about the crow's fascination with her own shadow and she kept looking at it and scratching it and pecking at it until her shadow woke up and then the shadow ate her and then crow became dead crow <laughs> and so when in your book when you talked about how the more we chase shadows the more shadows appear just as a silkworm chokes on its on the threads of its own making so the ignorant mind binds itself to its own allure, allurements i uh you know it was it, it was very resonant and i think that you know under like can you talk about striking that balance between understanding where understanding your shadow or where your own limitations are and not getting completely consumed in it it's fascinating i teach about that i teach about that melanie i'm glad you asked that question I don't know if you've noticed this but worldwide a lot of spiritual movement of the 21st century has become about the shadow and instead of looking for the light within we are now justifying the shadow the shadow is healing the shadow the shadow is the guru the shadow is the disciple there's a lot of drama and melodrama and not a lot of movement from the amount of counseling and therapy and trauma work and spiritual retreats and magazines and media attention you would think the human beings would be less less prone to sorrow but we're not we're we're even more confused than ever because the the approach of the non-dual vedas is stop trying to fix it that's not who you are so the teachings i explain it as vulnerable in enlightened vulnerability you may be vulnerable you may have been stupid you might have some unfixable traumas but if you go on looking at that and trying to fix your broken self from a broken space you're just going to go round and round in circles and have better days and less better days but if you allow that trauma to be and look for that avinashi unbroken invincible wholeness within you it's only then that you can come back and love and soothe and heal yourself so it's like a little child is broken 
and the child from time to time stops crying and tries to take care of itself. But it's only when the mother comes back home that the child can really be soothed. And it's like we've stopped looking for that inner mother, inner father, inner guru. We hate the gurus. We've thrown away our parents. I'm, I'm just talking about an irreverent society in general. Right, I'm right. not saying about specific ways, but we don't like our elders. We've put the aging away from us. They don't live amidst, amidst us. It's a teenage culture. We're all trying to look younger than ever, deny the realities of aging and death, deny the needs for our community. No wonder COVID has hit us so hard because we were, we were so in denial of everything. And we wanted to be in that space of irreverence and also like a false egoic invincibility when really we are really vulnerable and we are, we are, we are aching aching for our own wholeness, starving for our own inner unconditional love, and really, really in groping in the darkness. And we have dreams and achingness for light. Nobody says, I don't want light, but they don't know how. That's why I wrote this book, and it took the time it took, because I knew that there is some depth in the deeper traditions of Buddhism, Hinduism, Zen. If you go into any deeper traditions of humanity, you find a whole path, not band-aids. You, you, you find real light, not, not, not a discotheque of possibilities. And, uh, and that's why probably my desire is that we don't settle for appearances, but it is possible to be sorrow-free. You know, right now when you're interviewing me, I have um, many things going on, not at a superficial level, but a deep existential level. I'm in the middle of the, I'm, I'm in an avalanche of transformation, change, loss. And I, and I find myself so radiantly okay. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I, I you know, myself. yeah. Oh, well, I love hearing those stories, especially because I, there's always, I, you know, in my clients, and we see this in the general public, there's so many beautiful gifts in trauma, the way I can, in terms of how resilient we are and when we can really, you know, I know my own trauma really was it opened incredible doors that I was not walking through and really showed me who I was at the deepest levels. And, you know, it, it's, uh, I talk about it a lot through the Egyptian myth of Isis and Osiris. And Osiris got chopped into pieces and ultimately went on to be king of the underworld, you know, instead of where everybody probably thought his destiny was to be the king of Egypt, but he literally had to come apart to come back together in a new way for a new destiny. That's amazing. I love how you use mythology. Mythology is, uh, is an eternal part of our, of our existence. Mythology is, is the representation of dark and light that lives within us. So to be able to go back and pull from that is un very important. And, and I want to say that, that we've lost our mythology. So thank you for bringing that back. Mm. In fact, my next book is about, I, I've written another new book. It's coming out in 
on February 1st next year, 2022, but it's called Roar Like a Goddess. Oh, and, I love that. Uh, it is about the mythology of Durga, Lakshmi and Saraswati to awaken women and men and mixed gender people against the oppressions of internalized patriarchy and misogyny and how we throw away our right to be self, which is beyond gender in all this unconsciousness around, um, around um, being fixed in our genders and roles. And believe it or not, there is Hindu mythology or Vedic mythology that helps us be really bold, unconventional men and women and quite different from the domesticated versions of mythology being put out there now by the new culture. So I'm kind of dug out some of that old, less, less spoken mythology. You might oh, enjoy that book. I will definitely enjoy that. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of, uh, well, I want to go back to the, like the way you talked about subconscious, conscious, subconscious, and then kind of who we really are, or like our true essence being, I love that as a, I talk a lot about how we're made in Trinity. Like we literally come from three embryologic, embryologic levels. We are made, uh, we live on the third planet from the sun. <laughs> There's our layers of our tissues all happen in three layers. And in uh, Carl Jung talked about the tension of the opposites. And when you can hold two opposing thoughts to be simultaneously true, then a third thing is born that couldn't previously exist. And I'm curious how that aligns with, with the Vedas and that concept of the subconscious conscious and then going inward to find your true essence. Yeah, very true. And, and, it's, and, and I have a Sanskrit saying for it, and it says, kartum akartum anethava kartum, which means if you don't think of existence this way, and if you don't think of existence that way, then it shall reveal itself as to how it is. Mm. Which is very much like Jung's expression. And then we have the conscious, unconscious, subconscious, superconscious. This trinity is amazing. It's, it's amazing because the trinity, the triangle allows for the opposites and something in between. And, and so we have the human mind, which according to the Vedas, and I talk about it in my book, can be three ways. And one is known as the way of darkness or tamas, where we are in our own self-imposed sleepwalking stance. We live in our own delusions, illusions, and self-created misperceptions, and we believe them to be true. And it's a kind of darkness, we may live in big houses, turn on all the lights, drive big cars, we take vacations in the top places of the world, but we, have, we, we live in a self-created darkness. Then there is the other mode of mind where we, where we say no darkness and we, we, we're in the overdrive. But we have lights, but these are not the lights that illumine the reality. These are lights that cast shadows of their own. They are like strobes. They, they are like, um, and it's known as rajas. So the mind is anxious, hyper alert, um, trying to be successful at any cost or 
dieting till you drop dead, you know, you're so much in control that you're actually not in control. And then there is a third option, the option of balance and the option to, to be able to take your darkness and your active, active mode, not, not need to hide them, but come into a place of knowingness. And this is known as the mode of sattva, where you want the mind to be all the time aware that I am a soul. I'm not the role I'm playing. I have connections with the supreme power and the great intelligence of this universe, that I don't have to prove something. I may have relationship with people and things, but the first, the most primary relationship is with me because I was alone when I came into the body and I will be alone when I exit this body. I'm meeting this carnival while I'm in the body, but I don't have to run after the bodies or what makes the body more comfortable. I have to use this time in the body to discover who I am. And this state of mind, the sattva state of mind and how to cultivate it, I've talked about in the book, like even spending time in nature, some solitude, some meditation, even getting up in the morning and making your bed can help you come into this third vibration of the mind. And uh, just the very practical teachings. And uh, I love Jung too. I have read some of his writing and I have quoted how he also was. He went through phases where first he talked much about the Upanishads and then he kind of went into his own, which happens to a lot of scholars. They, they begin somewhere, they're inspired by something and then their own self starts teaching them. So we had an original teacher there. Oh, I love that, that when you get inspired, then your own self starts teaching you. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. such a beautiful, I've not uh, uh, contextualized my own evolution in that way. And I absolutely love that. That's really profound. So thank you for that. One of the things. Well, just a few things oh, you shared with me. Just a few things you shared with me informally, very much are gifts from your inner guru, right? Yeah, no, thank you so much. Yeah, before the podcast, I, I shared with Shona the, uh, my work about how the, some of the ways that the Vedas r- represent our anatomy and how I use that for energy healing and transformation in my cl- clients. And, um, you know, I've thought of it often like divine download, but I think thinking about it, you know, equally divine upload. <laughs> As well, you know, and it's definitely, yeah, been, uh, uh, you know, and that leading with who, like, I, you know, for myself, I I have a lot of credentials. And so I talk a lot about how I, you know, I led with my credentials to justify who I was for a long time, you know, and now showing up much more with my inner being, you know, leading with my inner being versus leading with my credentials has really had profound magical transformations on my life. And that's, yeah. uh, you know, back to what you were talking about earlier, really, um, you know, that that discovering who we are is the most important piece. One of my favorite parables that you told in your book was about the, inv- was the invisible rope story. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could recap that for the listeners. It's a classic story from the non-dual teachings of the Vedas. And uh, 
it talks about the power of the mind to spook us into believing uh, the misperceived reality. So reality could be quite something else, but we could perceive it differently, come to our own conclusions, and and live the rest of our life based upon those um, errorful judgments. So the story goes that you, uh, you know, you may come across in the dark night, you may come across in a dark corner of the house, you may come across a snake and get really, really scared because sometimes these creatures can show up in the most unexpected places. And you could even have a heart attack. You could have a stroke. But then somebody comes along, a friend, a guide, turns on the light and examines it. And it really was just a, a rope that was in such a way that it looked like it was a coiled up snake in the dark. And the Vedas compare the person who turns on the light and helps you see objectively what is what as the guru or the teacher, the guide. And your misperceived judgment becomes the basis of what is known as mithya or a life based on half reality. Why half reality? Because you did see the snake, but it was only in your mind. So it has some reality, but only for you. It has a subjective reality. It's not an objective reality that everybody can confirm. So from that perspective, then it would have been a complete reality. But it's only a mitya reality. And then Veda goes on to say how we have based our entire life on a mitya reality or a half reality where we see our body in the mirror, we see our thoughts and we go, well, that's who I am. I am my thoughts and I'm my body. And, but you, you, but, you need a guru or you need a book like a guru to open the lights for you and make you realize if you have a body, you are the seer of the body. You say, I have a body. When you say, I have a dress, you're not the dress. You, you, this is, you have um, certain thoughts, you're not those thoughts. You are the seer, the witness, the observer, the sakshi of those thoughts. You are like that vast sky in which clouds are coming and going. But just because clouds are looking ominous one day and they block out the sun doesn't mean that the sun doesn't exist. And just because the, their senses look outwards and they cannot see the presence of your true self, which is uh, invisible, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So they use the snake and rope analogy to say, we've spooked ourselves and, 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 and we've conditioned ourselves to create an identity of ours, but that identity is only a suffering identity because we are estranged from our true nature. And our true nature can be known, can be revealed through right teachings so that we can turn our eyes inwards and meditate upon that truth. And the new meditation tradition is about stress relief and lowering your BP. But originally the meditation was about, it was always in the context of turning our senses inward, stilling our mind to say, okay, I'm not going to go wandering about looking for the snake. I'm going to go find the rope of my inner reality inwards. So this story is very useful. It is. Uh, like sometimes we think our enemy, this is our enemy. 
and we, or, or this cancer is the worst thing that could happen to me. But in reality, those are the doors that open us to the best things in life. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and the other side of that story that I really enjoyed was the like the cow that wouldn't move because it needed a rope around its neck and that you, the farmer just pretended to put a rope around its neck and let it out and it wouldn't move. You know, the rope wasn't real at all. <laughs> <laughs> that it was just, you know, that we, uh, you know, we need this, uh, you know, or we think we need this motion, this uh, yeah, these, thing to these move forward. become like imaginary. Very true. These beliefs are like imaginary ropes. And then, um, you know, we feel bound. There's another story of a, how do you have seen, because in India we have elephants. And I personally know of people who have elephants in their home or on their farmlands. Oh, wow. And how do you domesticate an elephant? So because so what they do is, when the elephant is still a baby, they tie one of its leg with a rope. And the baby is small enough that it can't really break the rope. Uh, maybe it's a chain and it can't break it. And so it knows that it can't move and it becomes um, subdued and it gives up. Now the baby is like a thousand pound something elephant, gorgeous male or female elephant. And this tiny little rope ties them with the leg. And they still don't go because they believe they are tied up. Just like cow in my book, who was just got used to being led around, even though she had no rope, but she expected to be led this is what happens where we expect to be told what to do. We think we have limits. We think we have, we don't have other chances. We think that these roles are holding us back, but they are not. But after a while, nobody has to tell us. We self-tell ourselves that we are in bondage. I, I, I meet, I've met like top psychologists who are, some of them are my students. And they'll come up to me and say, oh, Shunya, you know, I've grown a lot from your teachings, but I have childhood trauma that I doubt I can ever overcome. Please bless me. I'm like, this person not only needs blessing, they need to read my book again because they're holding on to the trauma now. So I'm not denying the reality of trauma. I'm just saying we really hone in onto our past and hold it so close to us. And we never let healing and health and space even transpire. Absolutely. One of my big missions is to start to advance the conversation beyond the trauma. We have to talk about the doors that it opens and the gifts that it brings and the power, you know, that for as much, you know, I get, you know, I understand you know, trauma can be really awful and very real and very, you know, and it, you know, and the, you know, and require some significant intervention. What I've learned for myself is that I was a co-creator of the trauma that I experienced, that I, and that it was part of my, through my learning about myself through astrology and other uh, systems and realizing how lost voice is, so, is part of my karmic backstory and that I manifested a childhood that was w where my voice was taken away largely that, you know, we're all happy to take credit for all the amazing things that happen in our lives, but we don't realize how powerful we are in creating the other side of that too. 
And that was huge for me in realizing like, oh, I chose all of this. And that's very freeing. Yeah, isn't that? Too, that like now it doesn't sit in my body and the people that didn't allow me to have a voice don't have that power, you know, that story that all sits in my body very differently than it did before I connected all of those dots. That is so beautiful. That is so, and thank you for bringing like the holistic vision around it because, and also acknowledging your own. And I don't know if there's any human in the 21st century who's not had their own trauma, but let's say two things. One is the ego is very sneaky or the, uh, or the mind which believes that the rope is a snake is very sneaky. So when the actual trauma is occurring, especially when we are children, we are victims. But afterwards, our ego turns into an aggressor and creates PTSD or complex PTSD and, and bounds us in that imaginary snake. And so we have to look at our own mind and who is going to take mastership, then that's your originally beautiful, blissful self, which is unblemished by its own nature. So then I come back to the second part, which is then there is my dear one who you have suffered and been a victim of karma and, you know, and stuff has come to you that you have something unbroken within you and you can bring yourself to a place where, as you said, convert that trauma into a learning, a lesson, or just let it go. Sometimes there is no rationale, but it is, you have to understand the law of karma there. But something will feel relieved because you've let it go. You just let it go. You keep moving like the wind, keep moving forward like the river. And so you don't hold on to it, not in terms of you're holding on to it and you're indulgent. And I've had my own traumas. And, and, but now I have found that I can hold my trauma like a bouquet and it gives me fragrance to prevent more trauma, to have better boundaries, and to, to recognize who I am, who I originally was before the trauma, who I always was despite the trauma, and who I can become in spite of the trauma. That's the conversation I'm opening. Mm, that is, uh, thank you for opening that conversation because that is so incredibly important. That, that gave me goosebumps. So when people are you know, whether they're in the throes of trauma or just trying to learn more about themselves in uh, one of the, you quote in your book, a translation of the Katha Upanishad that awakening comes not through logic and scholarship, but from close association with an awakened master. How do you recognize a true guru and how do you use your discernment to figure out where to get help because there's you know there are a lot of choices right now and i feel like it's also more important than ever to be really discerning because they're not all you know i think it's important or i always like to guide people towards where they're going to get the biggest return on their investment or where things are most authentic and to you know there's a lot of uh noise in the guru space certainly right now definitely and in the 21st century it's hard to find pure milk, good organic, non-genetically modified food and fruit, and, um, and genuine teachers. But just like when we are ailing in the body, we need a genuine doctor and we look around 
we'll look up reviews, testimonials. They should have some experience. Um, they should have some background and, you know, um, community around them. So we want to we wanna be discerning in any space. Um, and in every field from the, I have, I have met the best car salesmen. In fact, a few of them are my students and they are genuine and they become sources of great recommendation. But in general, we've now started using the car salesman as the image of some, you know, wheeling and dealing kind of person, but it's not true. And for every false guru, there are 10 genuine teachers. Um, that's just the fact. So we shouldn't throw the baby with the bathwater. And sometimes I feel like, why blame the master? Look at all the sleepwalking disciples who have so many red flags. And they continue to continue to, to cave in because that, 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 that myth guru is meeting somewhere their myth needs and myth desires and mythological misconceptions around what a teacher is. That's why to write a whole chapter on it and even go through a, a list of what to see and what not to see. And the word surrender is really misrepresented. When we are sick and we have an ailing ulcer, we have to surrender our body to the doctor. Or we have an appendix, we have to surrender it to the surgeon. So we have to surrender our ignorance to the guru, not our vagina, not, and not our esteem, and, and definitely not our, the choice of how to lead our lifestyle. And if a guru says, leave your loved one, come join my ashram or my sangha and take away all your money from your bank and deposit it, it's common sense not to trust such people. And why is it that we don't have that common sense? Then from that perspective, I think it's common sense to think that all colors are made equal, that all genders are equal, including the mixed genders. But people don't understand it. Because we human beings have not evolved very much. And wisdom is no longer a popular topic. We've just, we don't like sitting with our elders. Television shows are all about beauty, sex, and everything superficial. So there is a whole breed of people who are taking advantage of it. They wear elaborate turbans. They have crazy hairstyles. They have costumes that they show up with. And it bedazzles and bemuses and, and seduces masses and hypnotizes people that I am the guru. But the guru is one who awakens you to your inner guru. And the guru should come from such fullness that they don't need you. And if the guru is always wanting your attendance, needs sycophancy, and needs millions to be cheering for you, you should be concerned about their diminished ego. And why do they need these external signs? So what I do instead is, what I say is, I continue to model what it is to be a teacher and a master in the 21st century. And... Um, and, uh, and keep showing people how to discern. And uh, that's all I can do. That's all I can do. Well, Achara Shunya, thank you so much for your work in the, this world. It's so, so needed. And I am uh, 
so grateful to have had you here today. Please tell me, how, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. Well, I'm sure you will share my website. Yes, uh, yes. I will put all the links in, <laughs> yeah. in the show notes for so sure. You can find me there. Yeah. My team of volunteers and students make sure that my message, my teachings is available on the typical platforms by my name. And uh, my books are available everywhere. People find books. Again, my author name is the same name I go by. And uh, it's easy to find me. It's harder to find yourself. So <laughs> I uh, love that. Well, I you look, may you look for me in search for your own self. I would say that to the readers. Yeah. Very, be- very beautiful words from an authentic guru. I encourage everybody to go get your copy of her book, Sovereign Self. It's absolutely beautiful and um, will put you in a delicious zone reading it and give you lots of lots of insight. I always love books that make my whole body vibrate and uh, your book definitely does that. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence Podcast. Text FEARLESS to 411-321 to take your first step into Fearless Presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.